0: Let's open our Bibles uh, this evening to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 10 is where we find our place tonight. Uh, Verses 1 through 39, uh, the entirety of the chapter is our focus, but we're going to read verses 28 through 39. Uh, As we begin, I have learned my lesson in trying to navigate these names, and uh, I'll just let you figure those out on your own. Uh, So Nehemiah chapter 10. Uh, verses 1 through 27 are a list of names that we will look at here in just a moment, and then we pick it up at verse uh, 28. The Word of God says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all ...who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons... And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our fathers' houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests. To the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, for we will not neglect the house of our God. In Nehemiah chapter 9, Israel acknowledges that their current season of God's discipline specifically their exile and dominance by a foreign king, was a direct result of their sin against the Lord. And so back in chapter 9, they call for a national day of repentance. They gather together to hear the scriptures, to worship, and to confess their sins from a heart of repentance. That then led to a desire to make a covenant with God in writing that expressed a renewed commitment to live in holiness toward their God, whom they acknowledged as full of grace and mercy course, at the heart of this firm covenant, which is listed there clearly for us in chapter 9 and verse 38, where they say, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. At the heart of this firm covenant is a commitment by the people not to neglect their God, but instead to live their lives unto him. Church family, that is the essence of repentance. The essence of repentance is to turn away from the sin that we've committed against God and turn unto the holiness of Jesus Christ. It was not enough for the people of Israel to just say they were sorry. They wanted to express their repentance by committing themselves to serve God wholeheartedly In a renewed obedience to his word. And this they marked by a formal covenant with God. A covenant that, again, they say in verse 38 of chapter 9, that they put in writing. I've entitled the message tonight, We Will Not Neglect Our God. Because that is the heart of this covenant. God's people declaring that they will not neglect their God. And so three things that I want you to see in our text. We'll see the list in verses 1 through 27. We'll see the purpose in verses 28 through 29. And we'll see the actual covenant in verses 30 through 39. First of all, I want you to notice with me the list the list. He actually begins the list in verse 38 of chapter 39, but notice verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, on the seals, on the seals of the list, the seals of the covenant are the names. And from there, beginning with Nehemiah in verse 1, all the way down to verse 29, we have a list of people who have made this public, covenant together. Now, I think it's important to note that Nehemiah, as we see in verse 1, is the first to put his name on the list. After all, he's the leader and he's leading by example. And so Nehemiah's name is first on the list of this covenant. And then we have the priest following verse 8. And then in verse 9, we have the Levites and then their brothers. Next, moving on down the list, we have the Head of households. And we come, and when we come to verse 28, we see this phrase the rest of the people. The rest of the people. So if you're looking at the list, we've got Nehemiah, the priest, the Levites, the brothers of the Levites, all the heads of household, and then the rest of the people. Now that phrase, the rest of the people, encompasses a long list of people that have gone unmentioned here in the text of Scripture. But they are in actual fact there on the list. In other words, we don't have the whole list in front of us, but if we were to see the whole list, then we'd not only see Nehemiah, the priests, the Levites, the brothers, and the heads of households, but we'd see a whole lot of other names as well. So, So the list is somewhat of an example, it's not exhaustive, it's representative. It's an example of a large body of people who have come together and publicly committed themselves together to this covenant. Now, what this list tells us is that they knew who was in and who was out. It's an identity list. Who among the population identified themselves as the people of God and who among the population did not identify themselves as the people of God? In simple terms, this list identifies who belongs and who doesn't. Who belongs and who doesn't. Now, friends, this is an Old Testament lens for New Testament church membership. That's the principle here. You see, the teaching of church membership in the New Testament is a principle that God's people in the Old Testament set for centuries as they made covenants together as the people of God. So even though we understand from a New Testament gospel lens what the church is and what membership in the church reveals through New Testament teaching, that principle of membership is something that existed for hundreds of years in the people of God. Again, this is a voluntary list. A voluntary list that showed who identified as God's people in repentance and who didn't. Remember, that's the means of the covenant here. They're not just taking a census of who by nationality identifies as Israel's race, the chosen people of God. They are, in fact, creating a list of those who are expressing repentance toward God. That's the purpose of the list, and so it is in church membership. When we put our name on the list, on the roll, what we're saying is I am among those who have repented of my sins and desire to pursue the holiness of God in my life. New Testament church membership is foreshadowed here by Old Testament covenants made by the people of God to their heavenly Father, of course, from a pure practical standpoint, and I know I'm talking largely to church members tonight, I think it's important that when we come to passages like this that we remind ourselves even of our identity here as it relates to our core convictions. In fact, the first of our ten core convictions as a church is meaningful membership. Meaningful membership, that is we join ourselves together just like these names in Nehemiah chapter 10. We voluntarily join ourselves together to submit our discipleship to the shepherding, fellowship, and ministry of this local church. And of course that shepherding and fellowship and ministry focuses on who has publicly identified themselves as people of God and have joined in that covenant with other people of God. So as we will this Sunday, we have somewhere around 15 new attendees of our church who will be coming to the membership class this Sunday afternoon, and I hope a few more between now and Sunday. And as we go through the material, what it means to be a a member of this church body, and those who need to get baptized, we'll baptize them. Those who've already been baptized and write out their testimony and give declaration of faith and sign their covenant of commitment with us, we'll introduce them, just like we have all of you who are members of this body, to this church family. And when we introduce them, that is symbolic. That individual or that family is saying, put me on the list. I want to be on the list of those who identify with God. I want to be on the list of those who have repented of their sin, who have been saved by God's grace, and who are not ashamed to let that be known. And so we see these correlations, these Old Testament principles coming to fulfillment and fruition right before our very eyes as a New Testament church body. And it began all the way back. In the Old Testament, as the people of God covenanted together in their repentance, in their identity as God's people. You see, church membership family matters. It does matter. And this list in Nehemiah 10 mattered. Putting their name on the list initiated the expressed desire not to neglect their God. Not to neglect their God, but to identify publicly with those who repent and desire to enter into covenant with him. And so we have a list. Secondly, we have the purpose. The purpose of the covenant. The purpose of the list. The purpose of this joining together of this group of people. And we find the general purpose stated in verse 28 and 29. Verse 28 says that they have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. And then verse 29 says, they entered into an oath to walk in God's law and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, His rules and His statutes. Now we're going to get to the details of the covenant in a moment, but here we just see the generalized purpose of what they're doing. This was their purpose for making the covenant together. They believed that God was a gracious and merciful God. He chose them. He redeemed them and set them apart as his very own people. And no matter how many times they messed up, they declared already for us in chapter 9 that no matter how many times they messed up as God's people, God forgave them and God restored them. And when you come to understand that's who God is, a gracious God, a merciful God, a redeeming God, a restoring God, it will create a desire in your heart to want to live for him, to want to seek his holiness in your life. And that's what they're doing. They recognize the grace and mercy of God, his forgiveness and redemptive purposes, and so they desire to follow his law. They want to be obedient to his word even though they had failed time and time again. So they've come together, identifying themselves as the people of God and committing themselves together, together to separate from the sin of the world. That's what is meant here when they say they separated themselves from the peoples of the land. They have come to commit themselves together to separate from the sin of the world to the holiness of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is what the doctrine of separation is all about. It's not just about what we don't do or where we don't go. Separation is separating from something to something. It's important to understand that. Separating from something to something. They committed themselves to abandon their pursuits of sin and to keep each other accountable in their pursuit of the holiness of God and the obedience of His Word. And again, if you don't see it already, let me just tell you, we have New Testament church membership in view here. We have New Testament church membership written all over this Old Testament example. A major purpose for our covenant together as God's people is not only our identification with God, but it is also committing to keep one another accountable to the obedience of God's. So this large group of people in Jerusalem, they're not only coming together to say, yes, I belong, I'm in, I identify as God's people, but I am also coveting with God's people publicly to say, I want to seek God, I want to obey God, I want to be holy like God, and I need your help in doing so. And herein lies one of the big reasons why many, in my opinion, Neglect church membership. They neglect covenants like we see here in Nehemiah chapter 10. Because they don't want to be held accountable. They don't want to be held accountable to obedience, to spiritual growth. But that's one of the purposes of coming together. Identity and accountability. Identity and accountability. Matthew 18 teaches us. In fact, all over the New Testament we learn that the church body exists. One of its major purposes is accountability. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? Where have you been? Don't go that direction. Oh, come back to Jesus. It's about being there for one another. covenanting together with one another so that together we are pursuing the holiness of God that together we are doing our best in the power of the Holy Spirit to obey His commands. By the way, I know we've been talking about legalism a lot in our study of Luke's gospel, but holding people accountable to biblical obedience is not legalism. I think that's important that we need to establish that. Holding people accountable, holding one another accountable, Accountable to biblical obedience is not legalism. It's not legalism when it involves God's rules. It's legalism when it involves man's rules. That's the difference. Obedience to God says when I put clothes on in the morning to leave my house or come to the pulpit, I must come modest and appropriate. Legalism says no when you leave the house you can't wear that. you got to put on a tie here. you got to do this. That's, that's the difference. That's legalism. that's man's rules. So we got to understand the difference in this when we're looking at God's commands. Their purpose for this covenant in Nehemiah chapter 10 is not to impose and uphold man-made orders. It's to impose and uphold God's orders. Orders that he had already laid out for them, but they had neglected. And so they've coveted themselves together for that very purpose. A purpose that at the heart of it says we will not neglect our God. We will not neglect His Word. We will not neglect His commands. We will not neglect to be obedient. We will not neglect His holiness. I think these passages ought to spur within our hearts often evaluation where we ask ourselves those questions. Are we neglecting the commands of God? Are we neglecting obedience to God's word? The list, the purpose. And then we see the covenant. The covenant, that's the third point of the text, and that's from verse 30 to 39. Now, now we're getting to the specifics of the covenant itself. And these specifics, I'll get it out in here in a minute. These specifics involved three promises that the people were making to God in regards to practical holiness. I think it's safe to assume that these commitments, these these covenants were reflective of the fact that they had not been obedient in these areas. Some of those have been made clear already for us as we've studied Ezra in the early chapters of Nehemiah. Some others not so much. But regardless of that, what they're doing is they're coming together in light of the law of God, their pursuit of the holiness of God, the obedience of Scriptures, and they make a covenant, a covenant that involves three promises of practical holiness. Promise number one, we will not marry unbelievers. That's the first promise. That's the first covenant. We will not marry unbelievers. Look at it there in verse 30. Here's the first statement of their covenant. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land. Neither will we take their daughters and give them to our sons. Now, this command by God given in Exodus chapter 34 and renewed by covenant here in Nehemiah chapter 10, this is not an issue of race. It is an issue of religion. When God's people marry those who do not identify themselves as God's people, then an ungodly influence is brought into the family, thereby corrupting the spiritual unity that God intended from creation in family Worship. Listen to me very clearly tonight. A marriage will never be what God intended it to be if a man and woman are not united on this most fundamental aspect of marriage. Genesis 2.24 tells us that God created marriage so that two people will become one. One. It is impossible for two people to actually become one if they are not already first one in their knowledge and worship of Jesus. If you're single tonight, I want you to hear me clearly. Should I turn this direction mainly? Listen carefully. To be single is a role that you should never view as inadequate on the condition of your marital status. Single people are no less valuable to the kingdom of God than married people. In fact, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that the single life, if given wholly to Christ, may be more fruitful to the kingdom of God than a marriage that is distracted by domestic life. Paul argues that. 1 Corinthians 7. So if you're single this evening, you're currently serving a significant purpose in the kingdom of God. And you do not, under any circumstances, need to... Rush into marriage with just anyone simply because you're single and not yet married. You're not inadequate in your current marital state. You are valuable to the kingdom of God. And I think that needs to be said. It's okay to be single, it's okay. Now, if you're married, it's not okay to be single. But if you're not okay, it's okay to be single. Don't rush the process. The second thing I want to say is this. Because when we rush the process, when we feel the pressure of family, culture, society, church, or whatever, then we have a tendency to neglect God just to feel the void of companionship. Just to have what somebody else has. Something that we want. Marriage. So let me, let me say this. Number one, not only is being single never to be viewed as inadequate. But secondly, it is never, never God's will to enter into marriage with someone who is an unbeliever. Never God's will. When you do... If you do, there will be tremendous challenges. There will be ungodly influences. There will be parental disunity. And most of all, there will be no gospel clarity and witness. The New Testament teaches us that marriage is about Christ and His church. That's what marriage is about. Yeah. You know, I thought it was about somebody ironing my clothes and fixing my breakfast. No, 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 no. If you enter marriage thinking like that, you won't be married for long. Marriage is not about that. Marriage is about Christ and his church. So if a man and woman are not united in Christ, then their marriage will never reflect a relationship with God and his people. You see, the point of this teaching on marriage in Ephesians 5, and we don't have time to read it tonight, is that at the heart of marriage, we have an opportunity as husbands and wives to reveal the gospel to the unbelieving world around us. But if there's no gospel clarity, if there's no gospel unity between a husband and a wife, then there is no gospel witness. In that marriage. And do you know who that affects first? Children. Children. Because the moment you move into an ungodly, disobedient marital union, you have said to your current children or your future children that God's word doesn't matter and the gospel is not that big of a deal. So maybe the advice is slow down. Be careful. Break it off. Repent. Accept who you are in Christ today. And when God is ready, he will bring into our lives that which he has preserved for us. People who are in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39 makes it clear that single people are permitted to marry. I'm not preaching against marriage. Single people are permitted to marry. However, the verse says, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. That is both an Old Testament and New Testament doctrine. And to neglect God in this matter is to willfully sin against God and invite his discipline on your life and on your marriage on the authority of God's word, I beg you, do not marry. Do not even date because every date, young people, is a potential mate. Do not even date someone whose life does not give evidence that they are a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is direct rebellion against God and it is an open invitation to his discipline on your life. So they make a Covenant. We will not marry unbelievers. The second covenant they make is we will honor the Sabbath. We will honor the Sabbath. That's the emphasis of verse 31. They are declaring in this covenant that they will renew their obedience to keep the Sabbath day holy by prioritizing worship and rest and avoiding work as God's law commanded. Now, brothers and sisters, God God knows what we need, doesn't he? He knows when we need corporate worship, and he knows when we need rest. In fact, the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. God rested on the seventh day. His law then later instituted a worship dimension to the Sabbath day, the purpose being that this day, the Sabbath day, should look different. It should feel different than all other days of the week. It's a gift to us. It's a gift to us that involves rest from labor, fellowship with believers, and concentrated corporate worship as God's people. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ transitioned our day of rest and our day of worship from the Sabbath, Saturday, to the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, Sunday. But the principles of the Sabbath are still expected on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. The principles is that it's to be different from the rest of the week. We're to find rest, fellowship, worship with God's people, the church, on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. And you know what? It takes just as much faith to honor the Lord's Day as it does to honor any of God's commands. When we gather for worship on Sundays, we are trusting God by faith, that he knows what we need week after week as we come together. The temptation may be to think, well, I I don't don't need to go to church this week. I don't need to gather with God's people. We just did it, you know, seven days ago. But God says, no, 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 I know more what you need than you do. You need this. You need the weekly corporate concentrated worship with God's people. You need this day every day of your life or every, every week of your life. You need this. And so by faith, by faith, we are trusting, even though we may not feel like we need it, we are trusting that God knows what we need. And by faith, we come together every Sunday on the Lord's Day, and we worship. And when we rest from our labors on Sundays, we are trusting God by faith that he knows our physical bodies and that he knows even better than we do that they need a day to rest in him and to trust his provisions. It takes faith to trust God, to rest in Him, and to avoid the temptation to do something productive on the Lord's day. See, worship and rest is to be the priority. And so their covenant here in Nehemiah chapter 10 involved a renewed commitment to keep the Sabbath day holy. So they said, we will, number one, not marry unbelievers. We will, number two, honor the Sabbath. And then thirdly, we will give to the house of God. We will give to the house of God. So from verse 32 through the completion of the chapter, Nehemiah and the people spend the majority of their time renewing their covenant to financially support the ministry of God's house. It's actually quite fascinating. One verse on intermarriage One verse on Sabbath and then the rest on financially supporting the ministry. From verse 32 to verse 39, there are nine references in these verses to the people committing their financial giving specifically to the church ministry. And I say church ministry, we understand this was the temple ministry. But as we know it in the New Testament lens perspective, the church ministry These commitments were not about legalistic obligations. It was about their desire to graciously give back to God in support of His work from all that He has graciously given to them. And so, in these verses, they talk about special annual offerings that they take. They talk about the need to provide structural items like wood for the atonement sacrifices to support the ministry of the temple. And then he closes it out by focusing on their first fruits or their tithes to support the full-time work of the priests and the ministers of the temple. And they committed themselves to all of this on their conviction in verse 39 that they would not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect to do this. In fact, everything in this covenant hinges, hinges upon this conviction that they would not neglect God. They weren't going to neglect God in their marriages. They weren't going to neglect God on the Sabbath day. And they weren't going to neglect God in giving of their tithes and offerings. Again, the question remains, are we neglecting God in these areas? I want to remind you of our seventh core conviction as a church. Generosity, generous giving. Our core conviction says as a church family here at Laurel that we support the work of the gospel through Christ's local church by obedient giving and sacrificial generosity, believing that our true treasures are laid up in heaven, not on earth. First Corinthians 16 tells us to bring our offerings on the first day of the week and to bring them as an act of worship. Second Corinthians chapter 8 says I want you to excel in the grace of giving. I want you to excel in it. 2 Corinthians 9 says, I want you to give generously, cheerfully. Uh, the Greek word cheerfully, is it, it means hilarity. Like you're, you're giving so generously, it just, it just makes you laugh to think how much you're giving to God. Generously, cheerfully. 1 uh, Corinthians 9 says, give so the needs of the church will be met, including those whose vocation is gospel vocation. Friends, we could keep going on. This this is because Jesus said more about money and possessions than just about any other single thing. And the point is we as God's people have a responsibility to take care of the ministry of the church. And that is done in a covenant. That as members of this body, we will not give him our leftovers, our scraps, or the things that are broken down. In our possession we will instead give him our first fruits we will give him the first and we will give him the best we will give him our tithes and our offerings because we will not neglect supporting the house of our God it's quite a covenant isn't it but in the reality of things it's really very basic Basic Christianity. I mean, these are the basic things. And if we can't get the basic things right, then we have to draw a lot of question marks on the reality of Christ's presence in our lives. We will not neglect our God. So they put their names on the list that identified themselves as belonging to God. We will not neglect our God. So they committed themselves to be accountable to the holiness of God and to the obedience of God's word. We will not neglect our God. So they made a covenant and they got specific. We'll not neglect Him in marriage. We'll not neglect Him on the Sabbath. And we'll not neglect Him in our tithes and offerings. The truth is, we need God to help us to neglect ourselves so that we may not neglect our God isn't that what Jesus called us to when he called us to discipleship if anyone will come after me you want to follow Christ here's the first thing you have to do deny you deny yourself neglect yourself pick up his cross and follow him you see at the foundation of any neglect of God in our lives is the forefront of ourselves we don't want to say no to us so in exchange we say no to him But those who were truly repentant said, God has been too gracious and merciful for us to live unto ourselves. Romans 14. (laughs) Therefore, we will live unto him. And they made a covenant. And the covenant was this We will not neglect our God. A simple prayer that could be prayed from our hearts tonight. God help me not to neglect.